Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. So, Ken, as, as we reconvene here at the beginning of October, we last spoke when the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals had really sort of slapped down Judge Eileen Cannon, issuing this very unusual stay of portions of her order that had uh, appointed a special master and uh, required the government to stop using certain documents that had been seized from Mar-a-Lago for its criminal investigative purposes. Uh, and as a result of that order, the uh, approximately 100 or so uh, marked classified documents that the government seized uh, during the Mar-a-Lago raid. They may use those for the criminal investigation. They do not have to share them with Trump or with his attorneys. And so after we did that recording, Judge Cannon issued a modification of her own order, basically removing the parts that the appeals court had stayed. And and among other things, that that ensured that it would not go up to the Supreme Court. There was no stay really to appeal anymore because it was was mooted by the fact that those parts of the order were, were removed. But then there's been back and forth since then between Judge Cannon and Judge Deary, who is the special master that Judge Cannon appointed. Uh, First, uh, Judge Cannon issued that order, revising her own order. And Judge Deary was basically like, I think by accident, you also struck the part that allows me to give you updates on how my process is going with this document review, which you flagged on Twitter as being a sort of unusual rebuke from the special master to the judge, basically saying, I, th- I think you screwed up again in your order. Could you change it again? And then she responds basically saying, that's not a screw up. Look at these other parts of the order, which say that you can give me those updates. Uh, and so, no, it wasn't a mistake. So it's weird sort of open dispute between the two of them. And then Judge Cannon overruled certain parts of the uh, of the process that Judge Deary wished to set up in his capacity as the special master, removing certain requirements that he had sought to impose on the Trump team. And so I guess we'll get into this dynamic between Judge Deary and Judge Cannon. But my first question is how much this stuff matters. The federal government had uh, made only this very narrow appeal with regard to Judge Cannon's order, and they got the stay on the important parts that they really cared about that had to do with the classified documents. You still have this very large trove of documents not marked classified that the special master is overseeing a review of. It's not clear how important that is to the government's case. So I, I guess, first of all, does it really matter what rules Judge Cannon and Judge Deary come up with for the special master process that will not be looking at the documents the federal government cares about most? Well, it's probably not crucial. So what might be crucial are what are the marked classified documents, perhaps Trump would argue declassified with the sheer power of his will, that now the government can look at and continue their investigation about. The government did get that out of the 11th Circuit, and that was in part because the government very cleverly narrowed their motion for a stay, made it far more narrow than they could have, and I think that appealed to the 11th Circuit. And its order, as we talked about before, even though it only grants just the relief they're looking for, completely undermines all the underpinnings of Judge Cannon's entire order, for that matter, even of her taking anything Trump is saying seriously at all. So now that the government's free to analyze and use in a prosecution those hundred documents, I think that's the important part of the situation. But clearly they still care about the rest because they are this past week moving the 11th Circuit for an expedited consideration of their appeal. Remember, they appealed Judge Cannon's initial order really on two grounds. One, that she lacked any jurisdiction to do any of it. And the 11th Circuit has already basically said that's right. She did lack jurisdiction. And also just on the injunction telling them they couldn't look at things. So uh, the government has now asked the 11th Circuit to do a really fast briefing on this with 
uh, the briefing done in November and argument this year, which is lightning fast for an appellate proceeding. Trump has opposed that, saying this is important stuff, it's historic, we're busy, it's mean, it's unfair, and so forth. And if the panel keeps the same attitude they did in that order slapping down Judge Cannon, I expect them probably to expedite the appeal. So that's a long-winded to say probably all this doesn't matter too much, but it's a very human, very federal judge interaction we're seeing here between Judge Deary, who was made a United States District Court judge when Judge Cannon was five years old, <laughs> and Judge Cannon, a relatively recent appointee. And I think there, there are multiple elements here. Uh, one element is probably a sentiment by Judge Deary that Judge Cannon has gone off the deep end on this. <laughs> One element is just typical, I have to say, federal judge hubris. On on the part of which judge or both of them? Both. Okay. Uh, there might, I mean, some critics might say there's an element of, of sexism, but at any rate, the, the tone between the two of them has been a little snippy, uh, <laughs> which is kind of, if you distance uh, yourself from the idea that the republic is collapsing around, this is kind of a delight to watch. Well, I mean, the interesting thing there is people have talked about how Trump got his comeuppance by proposing Judge Deary uh, because they had this cockamamie theory that because of Judge Deary's time on the FISA court, he must have grave skepticism of the FBI like they do and be sympathetic to their concerns that the that the government's out to get Trump. And that's, that's clearly not the case. But I mean, it was also Judge Cannon chose Judge Deary. Technically, she has the power over the special master. She chose the special master. But if you want to be in a position where you have a special master who isn't going to feel like he might be entitled to sort of tell you how to do your job and send snippy orders basically saying, I think you screwed up this ruling, you could have picked someone who's not a sitting federal judge to be the special master. And instead, she chose this guy who has been a federal judge since she was five and presumably might have suspected that Judge Deary was going to think not without good reason, that he really knows more about how to run this case than Judge Cannon knows. It's true. And she is, at this point, engaging in a certain amount of micromanaging of the special master. Now, there's no question that the federal judge who appoints a special master has complete authority over them, can overrule them on everything. But you don't typically see it, because in, in part, part of the reason you assign a special master is to get this stuff off your plate and not to have to micromanage and get involved in uh, dealing with the attorneys who are often very annoying. So not to have to get involved in like scheduling stuff. So it's kind of surprising to see Judge Cannon last week come back and countermand Judge Deary's timeline, the schedule for briefing these arguments to give Trump more time. I mean, that's a level of micromanaging a special master you really don't typically see. And of course, the more substantive thing she did is that uh, Judge Deary said very early on, you know, well, uh, Mr. Trump, you don't get your cake and eat it too. I want declarations that are saying here's where the inventory is wrong, and here's what I contend was planted, and here's what I contend that has been left out. And uh, Trump objected to that, and Judge Cannon overturned it, saying basically, I didn't call for that, and there's no need for it at this phase. And that has made a lot of people quite outraged. It A lot of people went to say that uh, that's completely outrageous. You're just letting Trump get away with anything. He doesn't have to uh, stake a claim to what he's really arguing under oath. I think that's all actually a little overblown, though. 
Yeah, I found it a little weird. I mean, because we've seen this inventory of what the documents are. And at first, you know, it was just like, you know, this is a box full of documents. And then the government produced a more detailed inventory. But, you know, and it talks about the the number of documents in the box. And uh, I think there are page counts and that sort of thing. But it's still, I mean, Trump doesn't know exactly what they took out of his house. And so I don't understand how you could tell him that he has to say which documents in these boxes were not really in your house when he literally doesn't know what documents are in the boxes. I understand it's frustrating to have Donald Trump out there making insinuations and claiming that evidence was planted in his house when, you know, clearly he's making that up. But I still don't understand in a court proceeding how you're supposed to tell him to make evaluations about the contents of boxes whose contents he has not actually been able to review and his attorneys have not been able to review. Yeah, you know, that's that's the more I think about it, the more I think that position is right, because they're asking him to make all these sort of final pronouncements before seeing any of the documents. And, you know, based on just a one line description of a document in an inventory, can you really tell, yes, I did have that document or no, I didn't. And I think you could make a reasonable argument that you should be able to see the documents before you have to make these pronouncements about them, uh, unless you're allowed to, you know, to revisit the pronouncements later. So I don't think that's the most unreasonable thing she did. I've come around to the view that actually micromanaging the special master's schedule shows more improper and and unseemly deference to Trump's wishes uh, than the other thing does. Well, but I mean, I think the fight over the schedule sort of reflects, I think, a fight over whether this whole process is proper or not, right? Like, as I'm sure Judge Deary's underlying view is that there should not have been a special master here. I assume he agrees with the 11th Circuit that Judge Cannon abused her discretion by providing any sort of equitable relief here. And so I guess, first of all, why don't don't you talk about the implications of that 11th Circuit ruling? Because basically, we, we can talk about what the schedule should be and exactly what sort of assertions Trump should have to make about what kind of executive privilege he's asserting, which is another area of conflict between Judge Deary and Judge Cannon. But the implication of the 11th Circuit ruling is that Cannon should not have provided any relief here, um, that because the, uh, the the government did not act with callous disregard for Trump's constitutional rights, and because Judge Cannon found that the government did not act with callous disregard for Trump's constitutional rights, that she should not have exercised equitable discretion here at all and should not have should not have intervened, should not have appointed a special master. It sort of seems to me like Judge Deary is trying to deal with this expeditiously because this is not a process we should be in at all. And Judge Cannon, obviously, her underlying review is that a special master review is, is an appropriate and useful process here. And given the volume of documents here, she, you know, if, if you were going to do a review that really did involve a lot of consideration of the contents of these 200,000 documents, I, I could imagine that this expedited review might actually be too fast. Now, I'm, of, of course, I think there's a strong argument that they shouldn't be doing the review at all, but that's not the premise of Judge Deary's job here. No, it's not. But there are a couple of ways that Judge Deary might think that it's appropriate to go faster. First of all, he may simply be thinking based on his many decades as a federal judge that if this is also also incredibly historic and important, then you can devote your full attention to it and we're going to get it done promptly. The other thing he may be thinking is, well, even if we have jurisdiction to do this and, and the 11th Circuit says you don't, even so, it's not going to take that long because the entire premise uh, that there might be uh, executive privilege documents is nonsensical. And so, you know, that can be pointed out in short order or uh, to the extent there's anything that um, he's going to make some very, very uh, 
questionable assertion of executive privilege that that can be done promptly without a really deep review of the documents. So that may be his thinking. But yes, I, I'm sure you're right that a certain element of it is him thinking we're spinning our wheels here. Uh, there's no jurisdiction to do this. But Josh, you're right. The, the basic thing the 11th Circuit said is this, that you know, th there's no statute that explicitly allows Judge Cannon to do this. There's no law that says you can appoint a special master to interfere in what happens uh, with a search and go through the documents. It's based on federal courts' broad equitable power to handle matters within their purview. And what the 11th Circuit said is, yes, there are those broad equitable powers, but there's very clear authority limiting it and limiting when the federal court has jurisdiction to invoke those equitable powers. And there's several factors here that show it's not eligible for the exercise of that power. And one key one, as you said, is that there's no showing of an abuse of rights. And Judge Deary even made that finding. So how can you be exercising equitable power? So I, I suspect that's what Judge Deary is thinking as well. As you've noted, DOJ has asked the 11th Circuit to expedite its review of the, of the broader appeal that they lodged against uh, Judge Cannon's order, and that that would be done by the end of this year, which is very fast for an appellate court, although, you know, we're still talking about, you know, two more months that we might be in this process, two and a bit months. Could and should the Department of Justice go back to the 11th Circuit and ask for a broader stay? I mean, given how sweeping the 11th Circuit's reasoning was in granting the fairly narrow stay, where they basically said that Judge Cannon had no authority to engage in the sort of review that she engaged in, couldn't they go back and ask to enjoin the entire special master review? I mean, the, I realize there are several elements of the test about whether you're entitled to a stay. One of them is your likelihood of, of prevailing on the merits. And so clearly they would do well on that test based on what we've already seen in the 11th Circuit's narrower order. Uh, would that be productive for them to go to go back to the appeals court and say, since you liked our last motion for a stay so much, how about a bigger one? I don't think it would be productive. One of the, the basic elements of appellate strategy is not to pick fights you don't have to pick and to make what you're asking for as narrow as possible. That was the smart thing they did with the original stay. And the more additional things you grab onto and the more ways you ask the appellate court to get involved in the trial court's discretionary areas, the harder it gets. So I, I think they probably think, yes, it sucks that we're going to have to spend all this time and money in this pointless special master proceeding, but we have access to the confidential documents, the marked secret documents now. We don't have to turn them over. We can continue to pursue our, uh, our investigation of them. So that's the real harm we were worried about, and it's gone now. Ken, there were a number of these news reports suggesting that Chris Kyes, this high-powered Florida attorney uh, who collected that $3 million fee deposit from Donald Trump to head up his legal team and sort of professionalize it, uh, that he's been sidelined. And we, and we also talked about, you know, well, how does it work when you have different attorneys from different firms, all with high billing rates, and they have to work together on, uh, on doing a, a joint legal project? This isn't a criminal defense yet, although it may be heading in that direction. And your answer was basically that it works badly. And then here we saw that spilling out into the press. And that includes that Chris Kyes was then quoted saying, the reports of my demise have been exaggerated. He is still clearly on the team. He, his signature is is on the, the brief that was filed with the 11th Circuit um, opposing the government's motion for expedited briefing. Uh, so what do you make about this spilling out into the press, uh, these suggestions of, of a power struggle among Donald Trump's legal team? I think we have to 
take them skeptically because, you know, Donald Trump's legal teams and inner circle tend to operate constantly at a, a sort of level of emotion and maturity you'd normally associate with the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills or something. <laughs> There's a, a real reality show vibe to it all. And so I think that people falling in and out of favor and drama and conflicts are are par for the course and don't necessarily signal big changes, but just, you know, same shit, different day. I'd say it's more like the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, where you literally had one of the housewives arrested by the FBI uh, on a charter bus that they had when they were all supposed to go to Aspen together. And instead, their their friend gets arrested and then the rest of them go off to Aspen for their fabulous trip. That That feels like the Trump situation where anybody could be raided at any moment by federal authorities. That's more than Beverly Hills. Yeah, that, that is a little on the nose. That's, yeah. that's true. So, yeah. uh, anyway, Sorry, enough about I, Jen it, Shaw. Continue. Yeah. So until we get him publicly exiting or moving to withdraw or something like that, then I, I think you don't assume that someone is off the team uh, until they're really off the team. I think you just you just see it as the a passing squall and not a real hurricane. Yeah, although it's not it's not great for that stuff to be showing up in the press. It's not, but I mean, isn't it priced in at this point, uh, <laughs> th that type of drama? I mean, is, does it really surprise anyone? No. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, you know, not anything we haven't heard a dozen times before. It fades in with everything else. Hey, everybody. This week's episode of Serious Trouble is free for all listeners. Uh, we want to thank all of you who are subscribing to this show, whether you're a free or a paying subscriber. And since this show is free for everyone, I also have a suggestion. Why don't you share it with a friend? If you've been enjoying this show, if you find it informative, if you find it entertaining, um, if it's helping you navigate all of this legal news about Donald Trump and the Mar-a-Lago raid in January 6th and any of the other big legal cases that we're following here, uh, share that. Maybe somebody else will really enjoy that too. Uh, and this is a great way to share it because this is a nearly one hour episode that they can listen to completely for free. Now let's go back to the show. We have a listener question here from Kay. Hi, this is Kay in Madison, Wisconsin. I have a question. You discussed in a recent pod how Judge Eileen Cannon expressed in her decision that Donald Trump deserved extra consideration in his lawsuit because as a former president, and I guess famous person, he had greater risk of damage to his reputation than another plaintiff might have. My question is whether this former president status works only one way. Because my experience is that when people have held positions of privilege, there may be higher expectations that go along with that. So here's an example. I work in a system that administers state and federal benefits. When benefits claimants screw up, they are subject to scrutiny of their level of experience. Adjudicators and administrative law judges invariably ask them whether they have previously claimed benefits, even whether they had a poster in their workplace informing them about benefits, and whether they have read the handbook for claimants. Claimants who can convincingly say they didn't have experience or understanding are given more leeway. Conversely, if the adjudicator finds they should have known better, they get anything but deference. So why does having served in the highest office in the land mean only that you get kid glove treatment? Shouldn't it mean you are expected to know how government works? I understand that as president, Trump did not have to get formal security clearance and was not officially read in on practices with respect to national intelligence information. But could a judge not consider that as a former president, he has in fact a special obligation rather than only special consideration? 
It seems that a reputation for being a highly powerful executive would come with expectations of competence in that role. Thanks a lot. I enjoy the show and also Ken's Make No Law podcast. Appreciate your work. Well, Kay, that is an excellent argument about what the policy should be, but it is not an accurate description of what the policy is. As we've talked about before, when these doctrines get kind of made up by courts, the way Josh has sometimes criticized, whether it's executive privilege or whatever else it is, it tends to get up made up in favor of giving the president in particular more power, more freedom, more leeway. It does not tend to come out in terms of making the powerful like the president uh, have more responsibility. Uh, and But he's not president. I mean, isn't that part anymore. of what's weird of what about what's going on here is that there, there's all these institutional privileges of the presidency, some of which Trump has been trying to, to exert. But it's it, one of the weirdnesses about Judge Cannon is that she seems to be extending a lot of that deference to him, even though he's not president anymore. Yeah. And there are excellent reasons why it shouldn't. I mean, we, we are on untrodden ground here, Josh. I mean, it's not like we've had a, a lot of situations with an ex-president having these sorts of standards bandied about in court. So yes, I think that to the extent policies are in play, that it would be a much better thing to approach it in terms of what his obligations were than what his rights were, what his freedoms were. And I think it's terrible to do it in a way, basically, where he can do whatever he wants uh, with top secret documents and that type of thing. But even though he's no longer the president, it is consistent with the way presidents have been treated in the past, where in general, when there are conflicts between uh, the the legislative branch and the president or, or anyone else, the, the president's sort of uh, constitutional power and discretion have generally uh, won out. And so although this is extending it to an ex-president, it's not really that it's, it's outside of uh, what we've gotten expected. I think there's a few considerations that are coming in together here, though. I mean, one is this stuff about reputation risk and the former president being extremely famous. Um, but it wasn't just about him that was a reason that you would give him special consideration. It was also about the, the public interest, that basically because Donald Trump is a former president and because he's a political flashpoint, frankly, there's a much greater degree of public interest in this case than usual. And sort of one of the arguments about why you would want a special master uh, was that basically a lot of people are paying attention and it will affect views about the fairness of the justice system and being able to demonstrate that the review was done really well would be would be advantageous and would be in the public interest. And I would note that similarly, J Judge Reinhardt, the magistrate judge who signed the, the warrant for the search on Mar-a-Lago, when he decided to partially release the application in, in support of the warrant affidavit, which you would not normally do at that stage, it was fundamentally because this was a raid on the home of a former president. And that was why there was a great deal a public interest in it. I mean, you also have practices at the Department of Justice. You, you wouldn't bring an indictment today because we're too close to the election. There's this whole practice around if you have a politically sensitive investigation, you're not supposed to bring the indictment at a time uh, that would be so close to an election appear to be influencing the outcome of an election. Um, and so that's, you know, about the prominent positioning of the people who could be defendants in those cases. But it's another it's another practice that, that gives them deference uh, that a person who was not politically prominent would not get. So this comes from from a number of places in the system. It's it's not purely about sort of showing respect to someone who was president. Maybe, but I mean, there's. I think we're putting different things together there. I mean, when when Judge Reinhardt 
released a redacted affidavit that was very much following established rules. I mean, that was a exercise of discretion along well-trodden lines, uh, applying standards that have been established for decades. What Judge Cannon is doing, though, is coming up with a system that, as the 11th Circuit points out, fails to meet the uh, established standards on multiple points. So I, I don't think we can say we can endorse allowing things like the special master to happen just because... No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm just saying that the idea that you get special consideration because you were the president, that there are a number of touch points in the system that have that implication. Sure. I see what you're saying about how another factor is how well the cases follow, but I think there has to be more than that for it to justify in any way. I mean, plenty of people were interested in how, how the, the R. Kelly federal case went, but that didn't lead to any sort of weird special treatment. Um, and I, I don't think it should here. And the other problem is, of course, with Trump, you have no natural limitation on what he asks for. So, you know, if he was a person who was inclined only to ask for things that were established in law, that would be one thing. But he's not. He'll ask for all sorts of crazy stuff. And you really can't have federal courts start granting it just because the public's interested. I want to talk about another element of case question, which had to do with the idea of of greater responsibility for somebody who has had a high profile role. And I, and I can think of a couple of places where where the justice system would impose that. One is, you know, we talk a lot about intent standards and, you know, do, did you have the requisite knowledge and intent in order to have actually committed the crime when you committed the, some, some act, such as holding on to these documents that you were not allowed to? And so conceivably, the experience that he would have had as president, even though he didn't have to get a security clearance, he was handling classified documents all the time. He was receiving the presidential daily brief. Presumably, some of that stuff would be evidence that the government would marshal if he were to be criminally charged in these cases to show that he did have that requisite intent. And so sort of similarly to what she describes with the benefits claimants, it does matter what Trump knows as a result of his... It's not sort of a moral argument about you were entrusted with this power and therefore you should be held to a higher standard. It's a knowledge argument. It's that, you know, because of the things that you did as a former president of the United States, that you must have known what the law was and then you had the requisite intent. Now, obviously, applying that to Donald Trump is, is more challenging than applying it to a normal elected official. But that's an instance where, you know, the, he conceivably would be held responsible uh, because of his prominence and, and expertise, if you want to call it that. Yes, but federal law on this concept is a real mixed bag. So, yes, on the one hand, Trump's experiences and having been to all these daily briefings are, are possibly evidence of his knowledge and intent. And that way you could see yourself imposing a higher standard based on what his responsibilities were. Similarly, you could see him getting various sentencing enhancements under the United States federal sentencing guidelines for a position of responsibility he held when he started committing this crime. On the other hand, you've got all sorts of ways that the federal system does the opposite, that seems to hold people with power to lower standards. And examples of that are how if you or I lie to the federal government, Josh, it's going to use one standard that's very harsh on us. But a federal agents getting a warrant to search our homes lie to the court, then it's a much more lenient standard in terms of what the impact of that is. Similarly, you've got the concept of qualified immunity that presents government actors when they're sued for constitutional violations. And the whole concept that, oh, well, uh, you know, unless it was clearly established this was unconstitutional, we're not going to hold them responsible. Even though, again, you or I, if we violate the law, we're not going to be able to say we didn't know that was illegal. So it's a mixed bag, I think, about whether or not this proposition applies. Let's talk about Eugene Carroll. 
E. Jean Carroll accused uh, former President Trump of having raped her uh, in the 1990s, uh, and he denied this in extremely uh, crude and disparaging terms, essentially suggesting that, you know, he wouldn't have done that because she is not his type. Uh, And then she sued him for defamation for, as she says, falsely accusing her of lying about him having raped her. Um, And so this has been working its way through the courts for a number of years now, and there's been an appellate court ruling that is unfavorable to Carroll. Um, one of the questions uh, was, can the former president even be sued for defamation? He made these statements while he was president. There are various laws that make it difficult to sue federal employees for defamation, uh, the Federal Tort Claims Act and the Westfall Act, um, which say that in general, if you're suing a federal employee for something they did in the course of their job, you have to sue the federal government. They step in on behalf of the employee. Um, and then furthermore, you can't sue the federal government for defamation. So if the federal government steps in to the former president's shoes, then she automatically loses. And so I guess there had been a a trial court ruling that said the president is not an employee of the federal government under the meaning of the Westfall Act. So it doesn't apply here. I guess the appeals court reversed that and said, no, the president is an employee of the federal government. Um, And now it goes back to the trial court. They have to figure out whether these statements that he made about Carol, whether he was acting in his capacity as a government employee when he made those statements? Yes, but it doesn't go to the trial court. They certified it to go to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is the equivalent of a state appellate court. So the situation here is that uh, the remaining question in the case was, was Donald Trump acting in his capacity as president when he made these crude statements and denials. And that's been something that's been seen as absolutely outrageous. Anyone would suggest it. It's been very controversial. And people have argued on the one hand, there's broad case law saying that politicians, when they're talking politics or acting in their job capacity, on the other hand, they're saying, how can possibly, you know, lying about a rape be part of your job as president? In which case I'd say you'd have to look fairly carefully at the last, you know, 30 years of presidents. But this is a matter that the Second Circuit says is covered by D.C. law under the doctrine of what's called respondeat superior, which is when is the employer responsible for the sins of the employee? Uh, That's a D.C. law matter. So this suit was originally, it's in the Second Circuit because the suit was filed in New York, but the president made the statement in his capacity as president working in Washington, D.C. And so now it's this is a District of Columbia labor law question. Exactly. So the federal courts have the power when a case in front of them turns on a point of state law that's not clear to do what's called certify the case to the state court. Usually it's sent to a state Supreme Court. Uh, to answer a particular question. So here what the federal court is saying is, hey, this turns on a point of D.C. law. It's not for the federal court, you know, the United States federal court to do that. It's for the D.C. court, which is confusingly also a federal court, but a different (laughs) type of federal court. Uh, So you guys have to tell us what the D.C. law is here so we can apply it. So now it goes off to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is somewhat notoriously slow to decide things, particularly controversial things, uh, for some number of years for them to consider this issue. And then it goes back for the federal trial court to apply their rulings on what the law is to the facts of this case. Wait, so I'm sorry, the, the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, this is different from the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Right. Okay. D.C. 
has a line of courts that are like state courts who handle local D.C. matters. And they're federal because it's Washington, D.C., but they're not the same as a United States District Court or the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Okay. Uh, it's a different track. And okay. it's all very confusing and uh but the bottom line is are they article three judges are they like are they nominated by the president and confirmed by congress or the does the mayor I wish you hadn't them? asked me that because i have no fucking idea Josh. <laughs> <laughs> i don't remember okay. off the top of my head I, um okay. <laughs> so it, it's it's a different court system and and it makes for instance the u.s attorney's office in washington dc very weird because you've got a component of it that acts like district attorneys prosecuting dc violations and ones who act as U.S. attorneys prosecuting violations of the U.S. code. So it's all kind of a mess. Yeah, I, I just looked it up. They they are appointed by the president and confirmed by the U.S. Senate. They serve 15-year terms. They do not serve for life. And uh, there is only one Trump appointee to the court. But Josh, this is does not necessarily mean that this is for now uh, a pause in E.G. Carroll litigation against Donald Trump. Because she has recently said that she is going to sue him again, this time under a recent uh, state of New York law uh, that allows it's called the Adult Survivors Act. And what it basically does is it revives cases where the statute of limitations has elapsed for various types of sexual assault. And it gives you a year. It's like if you miss the statute before, we're going to give you a year to sue now. So she's been saying that she's going to sue him for rape under that law before that year period is out. And that would bring up all sorts of interesting constitutional questions because these statutes that revive previously lapsed statutes of limitations are constitutionally controversial. There's been a lot of litigation back and forth, and you can expect that to be a, a, another big uh, thing to, to run up to the Court of Appeals a few times. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's interesting because this defamation litigation has always really been proxy litigation over the alleged rape itself. I mean, yes. the, the the real injury to E. Jean Carroll would be the the rape more so than the, the president's statements about the rape. But because of the uh, statute of limitations and the fact that the alleged rape, ha rape happened so long ago and the statements were recent, the statements gave her an entry to sue, whereas this al allows you to actually have a court case over the underlying factual matter. Now, of course, you you know, in addition to those constitutional issues you discussed, there's also I mean, the reason that there was a statute of limitations in the first place, the difficulty of, of establishing to the satisfaction of a court the facts of an event that happened so long ago are is, is really substantial. But so at, at least this creates space to have a, a, a dispute over what the what the really the core matter of the dispute is. Sure. And I mean, here's the thing. We've always said there's no statute of limitations for murder in most jurisdictions. And there's nothing magic about murder that makes it easier to prove after 30 years. But we let people try to do that. With uh, respect to sexual assault, recently there's been a trend towards extending the statute of limitations, lifting it, sometimes reviving it. And, you know, it's questionable whether that's any harder to prove. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting to see how this changes what they're doing. And it may bring us closer to this issue where Eugene Carroll not only wants to depose Donald Trump, but she wants his DNA. She claims that she has a DNA sample from the rape and that uh, she will be able to prove that it happened. When we talk about a statute of limitations, most often we're talking about a criminal offense. This is civil litigation. Are the, are the rules typically parallel on that? Is there no statute of limitations for wrongful death, for example, much like there isn't one for murder in most states? 
There usually is one for wrongful death. There are a few jurisdictions that when it's, you know, a wrongful death in the nature of a murder and intentional killing uh, impose no statute of limitations. And statute of limitations are increasingly one of those areas, kind of like the tax code, where you've got all sorts of little exceptions and, and add-ons and things like that uh, that get added in during the, to reflect the issues of the day. I guess I, I'm trying to think about which way the balancing of the equities goes there. I mean, on, on the one hand, because the burden of proof in a civil case is lower, you might be more concerned about the fact that if you're having a trial that's based on an event that happened a long time ago, that you will end up with people being wrongly held liable for things um, because they're able to exceed that bar. The flip side, obviously, is you don't send people to prison in a civil case. Right. Um, and that's a reason that it might be more acceptable to you that they the case might sometimes be resolved incorrectly uh, after a long delay. Exactly. Let's talk about January 6th, uh, since we talked some about those those courts in Washington, D.C., because um, we, we talked a lot about the January 6th proceedings back when we were doing all the president's lawyers, uh, the, the various criminal cases that were brought against rioters who, who entered the Capitol and who may have assaulted police officers and various other things. Um, as of late September, 919 people have been charged uh, in these cases. And what we've started to see is some cases with, with some pretty long sentences coming out of them. I know at the beginning, the very first cases, a lot of them had you know a 30-day sentence or no custodial sentence whatsoever. There would be some a fine and some probation or, or other supervision. And the question that people had at the time was, are they going easy on these people? Or is it these, these are the cases we're seeing first because these are the simple cases with relatively low-level offenses? And so what we've started to see is that as there's more time and they're able to get through more complex prosecutions, including some trials, uh, that we are seeing those longer sentences for more serious conduct. Absolutely. And you can remember a year ago when they just started to do some of these cases, there was a lot of angst about why aren't they doing a lot more? Why aren't they doing more serious cases? And, you know, we counseled that you got to wait and see because this is a big undertaking. So I think the Department of Justice has really stepped up and done this as aggressively and effectively as can reasonably be expected of them. Uh, they have done 919 defendants. And to put that in perspective, that is more than uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia normally does in a whole year. So they've basically doubled their workload doing this series of cases. About 400 of those have pled guilty already, so they're they're fairly swiftly resolving them. And yes, they did the easy ones, the ones that are going to be pure trespass early on. And now you're getting the, you know, the 10 years, the seven years, the harsh sentences like that. Significantly, they have taken a number of these to trial and they have won every trial. Now, given how controversial these cases is, how politically fraught, it is notable that they've been able to sweep the board and win every single one. This week, we're seeing a particularly significant one, the Oath Keepers trial, the first one to go to trial where they charge seditious conspiracy, you know, which is the big swing for the bleachers case. And we're going to see there, I guess, when the the feds get really aggressive and really ambitious with what they charge, how that holds up in a trial. One of the defendants in this trial, Stuart Rhodes, is a graduate of Yale Law School. And I know that there were some creative arguments that he wished to bring in this. Do you have a sense of what this trial is likely to look like where you have, you know, this is not some guy who's going to claim that he didn't know Congress met at the Capitol? 
Yeah, I enjoyed the uh, satirical person on Twitter who said that this is the closest a Yale Law grad has gotten to a jury trial recently. Um, (laughs) So the judge is is very much the gatekeeper here and has not been allowing uh, this particular guy, Stuart Rhodes, to bust out with all the crazy theories. Uh, Rhodes is represented by counsel. He made some efforts to change counsel that the judge took as basically attempts to delay the trial. But uh, no, the judge is not letting him go into nutty things. Uh, The defense, based on the opening statements, is going to be basically, yeah, they use a lot of overheated rhetoric, but this is all protected activity and there was no actual violence planned. And do you think that's likely to fly? I mean, you you note that they've had a perfect record so far. Is this, would you be shocked if they did not get a a conviction in this case? I mean, this is probably the hardest one they've done so far. And uh, one of the reasons is Rhodes isn't there in the thick of the fight. He's not part of the flying wedge of Oath Keeper dudes uh, in camo running up the steps uh, trying to breach. Uh, He's off orchestrating things. So to that extent, yes, uh, it's more of a thing based on someone sending orders and based on speech that could be taken in some uh, circumstances is just hyperbole. So I think it's the most challenging one they've done, and it'll be interesting to see. However, so far, none of these defendants is getting any traction with any D.C. juries or or any of these judges when it comes to uh, guilty or not guilty. I, I mentioned uh, claiming not to know that Congress met at the Capitol. That was a claim that Timothy uh, Hale Cusinelli made. Uh, that's the Hitler mustache guy. Said that he he, th- he thought the Capitol building was different from the place where Congress meets. He got sentenced to four years. Um, we've seen seen other sentences of you know, of seven or even ten years. Uh, can we talk a little like what did, what did you have to do to get one of these longer sentences beyond just trespassing into the Capitol building? Well, the guy who got seven years, who's a former uh, police officer from New York, was accused of uh, restraining a police officer while other people beat him. So, you know, you're in the middle of a riot and you're helping hold down a cop so the cop can be assaulted. Yeah, you're going to get a significant chunk of time for that. Uh, the Hale Cusinelli, the, the guy who claims he was only ironically dressing as Hitler to protest, <laughs> I, I believe... COVID restrictions or something. Uh, When you're explaining, you're losing. Exactly. He, too, was accused in being involved in some of the violence towards police officers on a lower level than uh, Webster was. But still, generally, uh, the system tends to be very harsh on any hint of being involved in violence against cops. I, I was struck by this four-year sentence for, for Hale Cusinelli because, I mean, the, the way the, the government describes this is they say he joined a mob of rioters that illegally breached a police line. Um, he commanded others in the mob to advance on the Capitol. Um, he was among the first rioters in the Capitol building, moving inside swiftly after the breach that took place at the Senate wing door. He made harassing and derogatory statements toward Capitol police officers saying a revolution was coming. He remained in the building for 40 minutes. And days after the incident, he told a friend that being in the Capitol was exhilarating, that he was hoping for a civil war. Uh, etc. He also was an army reservist with a, with a security clearance. And so I'm wondering about, you know, that, that four-year sentence, to what extent does that reflect either a trial penalty, because Hale Cusinelli went, went to trial and was convicted, to what extent does that reflect that, you know, as a person who is in the military with a security clearance, that there are higher expectations of you and you might be sentenced more severely? What, what do you make of a sentence like that? I think it's all of the above. There's no question there's a trial penalty. That's not too surprising. And there's no question that the idea that he was someone that they would expect more from with his security clearance and you know obligation to the government, that type of thing, 
There's also, I mean, just plain old legal realism. The guy's a dick. Okay, so yeah. he's just he dressed up as Hitler. Yeah, he dressed up as Hitler. He said all sorts of racist stuff, and you know, those things are his First Amendment right. But realistically, when you're a jerk, the judge is more likely to to sentence you harshly. Although notably, not as harshly as the government wanted. The government was asking for a closer to seven year sentence. He only got four, but still, four years in federal prison is is nothing to sneeze at. Finally, let's talk about uh, some appeals court decisions about social media laws. Both Florida and Texas have recently enacted laws uh, that are that purport to restrict the ability of social media platforms to discriminate based on the political valence of content when they do content moderation. Um, and these laws have sort of generally been viewed as a as a political measure that they are meant to express conservatives' dissatisfaction with the big tech companies and show how uh, how Republican officials are trying to fight back against big social media censorship. Uh, but the sense has been that, you know, these, these laws clearly do not comport with the First Amendment and they will not be upheld in court. And so, in, in fact, both Florida and Texas, they lost in district courts uh, when there were lawsuits brought against these laws. And the 11th Circuit uh, in the Florida case um, went along with the district court and said, yes, this is unconstitutional. Uh, in fact, it was uh, the opinion about the Florida law being unconstitutional was written by Kevin Newsom, who was a judge appointed by President Trump. But in the Fifth Circuit, for the Texas case, there's this opinion from Judge Andy Oldham overturning the trial court, saying, in fact, the Texas law is constitutional, can go into effect. And this uh, ruling, I think, has been taken by a lot of people to be very surprising. Is it the sort of thing that could survive at the Supreme Court? And what is his rationale for why Texas can, in fact, tell social media companies what they have to have on their own websites? Well, Josh, this is a a good example of the distinction we've been talking about between Trump-appointed judges and Trump judges. And we've talked about how there's sort of a continuum of how result-oriented somebody is based on who appointed them and, and how political they are, whether they're liberal or conservative. And here you've got two on the surface, very similar judges, you know, both Federalist Society members, both went to Harvard, both clerked on the Supreme Court, both appointed by Trump. But you've got dramatically different decisions. In the 11th Circuit, you've got this very measured decision that takes all the Supreme Court precedent very seriously to say that, look, the websites have First Amendment rights, too, just like a paper has uh, editorial control over what goes in it. They have editorial control over what goes on them. And that's the First Amendment. And that's why this st- statute that I, I think no one seriously thought was constitutional is unconstitutional. Then in the Fifth Circuit, uh, wow, uh, Judge Oldham here, this this is a rip snorter of a political screed of a decision. And notably, you are not getting much support of it from legal sources. Now, if you, if you want to go to like a polemicist like Dinesh D'Souza or something, they'll tell you it's the greatest decision any, anywhere. But if if you want to go to legal academia, even conservative legal academia, you are not finding a lot of support for it because it's just, it's kind of nuts. Basically, it starts out by saying we've got to decide whether or not this law is constitutional by looking to the original meaning of the First Amendment. Uh, which is, you know, enough of a stretch when you're the Supreme Court. But when you're an inferior court, actually what you're supposed to do is look to see what the Supreme Court precedent is. And this opinion really blows past all of that, comes up with a sort of view of the First Amendment that discounts any editorial right, uh, that that basically frames it as there is no right to censor, which is ridiculous. It's a very widely 
criticized and even derided decision, I think justifiably so. And the answer would be, no, I don't think it has a good chance of surviving in the Supreme Court. I think it's got probably Thomas and probably Alito from some of the comments they've made in the past. But for instance, Kavanaugh has recently written opinions that this contradicts. So I, I, I think this is something that that really goes far too far into really a political decision that even the current very conservative-dominated Supreme Court is not going to put up with it. So this was a three-judge panel. Uh, and so Judge Oldham didn't act alone here. Edith Jones, who was appointed by George W. Bush, uh, concurred with most of his opinion and agreed with him that the the law was was not unconstitutional and could go into effect, um, at least not unconstitutional on, on a facial challenge. There could be unconstitutional applications of, of it, like many laws. And then you have uh, you had a dissenting judge also appointed by George W. Bush or a, a dissenting in the key part. Uh, judge Leslie Southwick would have would have held that the law was a violation of the First Amendment rights of the uh, of the platforms. So you have, you know, the even though it's so many people are saying this decision is so crazy, he at least brought Edith Jones along uh, in the parts that really mattered. Yes, although Edith Jones has long been an extremely conservative Fifth Circuit uh, judge, long been sort of a on the short list, dream list for conservative presidents to appoint to the Supreme Court. So it's not terribly surprising that he would uh, get her. Uh, but they're all indications are the whole Supreme Court's not going to have an appetite for this. You know, uh, Judge Kavanaugh, again, wrote relatively recently a decision on this whole sort of issue about whether or not private platforms can be treated like public platforms. Uh, that pretty clearly went the other way. Judge Thomas has made some comments suggesting that he has an appetite to force private platforms to abide by the First Amendment. And Judge Alito is, you know, game for anything. But uh, <laughs> let me put it this way. If the Supreme Court upholds this, then things have gotten a lot worse than we suspected. And remember, in the same case, the Fifth Circuit case reinstated a stay of the law months ago. So they previously had looked at it and thought it was very dubious. Right. Over a decision of the, of the Fifth Circuit here. So the exactly. Supreme Court has already intervened to bring the Fifth Circuit into line at least once in this specific case. I think that's enough serious trouble for this week. Please uh, tell us what you think of this episode. Send us any questions you have about what we've discussed or about any other serious trouble that interests you. Uh, and you can reach us by email. Ken, can you give everybody the email address? Uh, the email address is ricohotline at seriousTrouble.show. Of course, you can join the conversation about this episode and more at SeriousTrouble.show, which is also where you can become a paying subscriber to the show. First of all, if you're already a paying subscriber, thank you. Uh, if you're not, for $6 a month or $60 a year, you can get every single episode of Serious Trouble in its full length. That's over 40 episodes a year. You can join that excellent commenting community that we have there and become part of this conversation. And uh, there are great comments there. I apologize to the people who were offended when I said I was relieved by how non-terrible they are. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I will set it. I I will, I will substitute satisfied, pleased and satisfied. Pleased and satisfied. I'm Josh Barrow. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble. I'm Ken White, and more is headed your way soon.